Hey guys, welcome back to Down the Line. It's your boy Sagar and Sean, and today we're joined by Dr. Mark Boom, a very, very special guest. Um, he's CEO of the Houston Methodist Hospital in Houston, um, assistant professor of medicine at Wild Medical College at Cornell University, and chairman of the board for the Texas Hospital Association, among many, many other things. Dr. Boom, it's great to have you with us. Thank you both. It's great to be here. All right, so I was wondering if you could start off maybe just describing your educational background and really what you envisioned yourself becoming after undergrad medical school. Sure, I'd be happy to. And, you know, it, it's it's one of those things that, that uh, tends to shift over time for most uh, people, and it did for me as well. Because um, really, in, in high school, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. I actually worked at a veterinarian office uh, thinking I want to do that and then decided, you know, I really prefer patients who talk. Um, and so decided to go the medical school route and uh, went pre-med, but uh, my father was an engineer and thought about uh, really the interface between medicine and engineering. And, and uh, at the time went to UT where they did not have biomedical engineering. So I did a chemi major. And actually my favorite class was a kidney dialysis class where, you know, you learned about biomedical engineering. I wish they had had that at the time. But uh, knew I was going to go to medical school and ultimately switched out to biology at the end and uh, went to Baylor College of Medicine, um, trained in internal medicine up in Boston at Mass General, uh, and then uh, decided I was interested in the uh, kind of interface between business and medicine. I, to be honest, didn't know exactly what that meant. I had thought I would want to be a surgeon or something when I started out in medical school, uh, ended up going in it, into internal medicine and then really liked that interface with leadership management business. Uh, and so recognized that I didn't have that toolkit. And so decided to go and get an MBA. I went to the Wharton school at the university of Pennsylvania and at the same time did some additional training to stay clinical. Uh, so I ended up boarded uh, in geriatric medicine as a well as a result of that. Awesome. I was wondering if you could describe basically your day-to-day -day life as a CEO of Houston Methodist. You know, I think a lot of students, especially college undergrads, have really no idea, you know, of what that entails. Maybe you could just explain what you see yourself doing day-to-day. Sure. Yeah, I've got a I've got a daughter in medical school, a son in college, and then a daughter in high school, and they all think I just sit in my office with my feet up. Um, so I, I sometimes disappoint them on that. But yeah, I, I'd say the first thing is, um, you know, as a CEO of a large system, put that in perspective. We have eight hospitals. We have twenty six thousand employees. We have thousands of affiliated physicians. Um, you know, a very complex institution with an academic focus and an academic institute, uh, training programs, residency programs, uh, lots of research being done. And then, of course, clinical care happening uh, really across our system and across many physician offices. So, you know, if there's one thing uh, you learn pretty quickly in this role is you oftentimes can't. Uh, predict your day. Um, although I have lots of meetings and other things on my calendar, it's not infrequent for a day to just go a very different way than I, than I thought it would. In fact, my yesterday did um, because uh, uh, on uh, Sunday, uh, you know, the, today is Wednesday, on Sunday I was contacted saying, hey, we'd really like you to come up to Austin and testify uh, for the Texas Senate. And so yesterday morning, bright and early, I was headed to Austin, you know, so that was obviously not what I was expecting for my day. Um, but if I looked at a typical day, kind of non-COVID, um, you know, I'm typically doing a variety of functions from, you know, meeting with some of my key reports, um, whether in a group setting or an individual setting, um, you know, helping 
them do their jobs and helping get them the resources to do what they need to do and move things forward. Um, we're a very large, complicated institution, so we have you know a main board, we have a board of our academic institute, we have a philanthropy or a fundraising board for our foundation. Each of our community hospitals have a board, um, so I end up you know with lots of board meetings and lots of board functions, a lot of interface with those individuals. I do a fair amount of work philanthropically, and so you know the average day will probably have an hour or so spent uh, on philanthropic activities as well. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly now during COVID, but even outside of COVID, there's a fair amount of sort of interfacing with the community uh, as CEO. Um, so you do a fair amount of media or a fair amount of outside organizations that, that you interface with, um, typically some travel associated with it as well. COVID, of course, turned all that upside down and uh, has been, you know, uh, quite a different uh, set of things. And one of these days, hopefully we'll get back to the, the old schedule. Uh, the other thing to note is I still practice medicine just a tiny bit, but I do practice primary care and I have uh, a hundred some patients in my practice, um, privileged to care for most of them for, you know, 20, 25 years now and uh, some deep, wonderful relationships. And so uh, I do see patients uh, each week and more days than not, I end up, you know, on the phone with somebody in, in Epic uh, or taking care of somebody or, or answering something or filling a prescription or ordering meds or something like that. Uh, and uh, that's a great part of my job as well. That's awesome. Um, so I find it interesting that you maintain your part-time clinical practice, um, even though you're so busy as a CEO. Um, how, how does life compare as a practicing physician to one that is involved in hospital administration? And maybe do you prefer one over the other? Um, or is there like a good balance between the two that you like to have? You know, it's a, a great question. And if I look back early on in my career, my first uh, real job coming out of business school was about 50-50, which was a really fun mix. I got to do uh, a lot of administrative things, helping build a primary care network, and I got to see patients, you know, about half of the time. Back then, still did a, a fair amount of inpatient work as well, which I don't do anymore now. I did a fair amount of teaching on the residency service, which I, I don't do anymore now. Um, but the reality was, as the administrative responsibilities increased, you know, there was really no way to keep a 50-50. That just wasn't practical. In fact, early on, had one boss saying, hey, you're just going to need to give up medicine um, and mm -hmm. to do this. And I pushed back and said, you know, while well, it will have to come down, um, I don't want to do that. It makes me a better uh, administrator. It makes me a better CEO, ultimately, um, because I, you know, I'm frontline at times. I see what it's like to use the EHR. I know what it's like to interface with a patient. I, you know, walk into our radiology suite and go review films with our radiologists and all those different things. Um, and at any given time, may have a patient in house and I'm working with the hospitalist to talk, you know, coordinate their care, etc. And I just think that brings it brings a lot of meaning to me, um, and I enjoy it. Um, but it also helps make me better at what I do because, you know, you never forget the principal reason you're here, which is to take care of patients and to mm -hmm. always put them first in everything we do. And that's something, obviously, being a CEO taught all of us or being a doctor taught all of us. So obviously, you know, the past year and a half, it's been crazy with the, the COVID-19 pandemic and everything your hospital and, and Houston and the world has been having to deal with. Is there anything in particular that you've learned over the years that's helped you through this difficult time? You know, I wish I had no experience with crises, but unfortunately, you know, that's part of anybody's life. It's certainly part of leadership. Um, every physician will deal with crises, sometimes obviously very acute with an individual patient. And unfortunately, I've gone through 
you know, going back 20 years ago, Tropical Storm Allison with flooding of our institution, you know, to Hurricane Rita and uh, dealing with some of the fallout of Hurricane Katrina and patients coming here, Hurricane Ike, uh, you know, and then, of course, Hurricane Harvey a few years ago, even the freeze that happened uh, this past winter, all of those different crises. But the commonality of each of those is they're short-lived and, um, you know, they have a pretty clear beginning, sometimes false alarms, sometimes worse than you expect. But nonetheless, they affect everybody simultaneously. It's coming at you. You do what you need to do. Very different than a COVID pandemic, which has now been going on for 18 months. So, you know, I'd say one of the things that's always served us well is understanding and recognizing that it's all about the people. As I said earlier, it's all about patients, but to care for patients, it's all about the people who care for patients, whether that's the frontline physicians and nurses, or whether that's people across the institution help making that happen. And it's one thing to fire that group up, staff that group up, you know, have a right out recovery team for a hurricane. It's a whole nother thing to, to fire that group up, keep them working, keep them motivated, keep them, you know, cared for during a pandemic where, uh, you know, initially it's all unknown. And then after that, where it is you know, almost inexorable day after day after day, you know, where now we're in the midst of a fourth surge where you know, a very common dynamic uh, that's happening is staff saying, wait a minute, we're doing this again. And we're doing this again because the community didn't get vaccinated um, and we could have avoided all of that. And so that's a pretty d- difficult time. But the fundamental message there um, is care for the people who care for the people. And so we have done everything we could during this time to make sure people were well cared for early on. That was open and honest communication. It still is. Um, It was transparent communication. It was acknowledging that things will change and we won't always know what's going on. And we may have to sometimes change what we're doing on a dime, um, especially early on in the pandemic. It was also saying, you know, um, you have a livelihood to protect, um, you have a profession to protect, you have a life to protect, right? So PPE, but ultimately things like uh, a decision we made last spring and and really the depths of that first wave when things were so difficult to say, we are not going to do any layoffs, we're not going to do any furloughs, we're not going to do any pay cuts. And we were probably among 10 or 15% of institutions in the country that were able to do that, most of them did things that were pretty harmful. We understand the reasons they did that, but nonetheless pretty harmful to their employees um, and regretted it later when we had a big, huge next surge and you needed those people there and you needed them well engaged. So really proud we were able to do that. Um, some of it as a leader always, but I think especially at this time, and I, I, I would say it's one of my learnings. I still vividly remember, you know, it's probably May of 2020. Um, you know, we've been running at it for a good couple of months things were starting to look better. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, at one point I sent out a video, I was doing lots of video communication with our staff. And one of my folks sent me a note saying, Hey, you know, just wanted to check in with you because you look really tired. And, you know, I realized how important it is. And I, I acknowledge that I actually wrote about that in my monthly president's letter for all of us to recognize and acknowledge our vulnerability. And so I think as a leader, you, you know, actually showing people that under times of stress and having them understand that just like them, you are human and you're struggling through a situation is really important. The other thing, you know, is really taking a stand when it matters. And for us, you know, that's been several times during the pandemic, many times during the pandemic, 
for sure. Um, you know, last summer it was um, around masks and making sure we finally got, uh, you know, the things we need to do as a community. It was also, you know, addressing head on um, the issues that were so painfully going through the country at that time um, around diversity, equity, inclusion, obviously, in the, in the wake of the George Floyd killing. Um, later on, and, you know, a great prime example of that as an institution, it was saying, look, vaccines work, they're effective, they're safe, they're the way out of the pandemic, and our patients deserve to have the safest environment possible. And we as doctors, nurses, other healthcare workers have a sacred obligation to keep them safe. And so we were the first hospital system in the country to mandate the COVID vaccine. Well, here we are now, you know, it's been about 155 days, I think it is, since we announced our mandate. Um, and now, you know, about a quarter of hospitals in the United States followed our lead. Why did that happen? Because it was the right thing to do. And we had as a team and as an institution and our employees and staff stepped up and did the right, right thing uh, to, to make, you know, the courageous decision to do what was right, that we knew was right. And, you know, right now in the midst of a fourth surge, it is serving our community and it's serving our institution and serving our employees incredibly well that we did that. That's awesome. Um, I also think part of the reason you knew how to care for your employees was because you're a practicing physician yourself, right? So uh, do you, do you yeah, suggest, you know, pre- yeah, go, go, go into that, go into that. Yeah, yeah. It, I would say, you know, it's interesting because um, I've asked myself that question a little bit and I'm a primary care physician, right? So I get to know people over a long period of time. I've had the privilege of having patients, you know, from every walk of life. Um, and, um, you know, they let me into their innermost lives. Um, and that is an incredible, profound privilege as a physician. I think it gives individuals who are physicians, period, but then, of course, physicians who end up in a leadership role, kind of a unique ability to empathize and to understand and to acknowledge what others are going through. Um, and so, yes, I do think that helped me make those kinds of decisions. Um, you know, for example, um, I remember having discussions with, uh, you know, a large team here. Um, this is April of last year. We're losing $30 million a week as an institution, which, you know, of course, is not sustainable for the long term. But we could see where this was going. We could see there was not an end in sight. Clearly, we've shown that 18 months later. But there should be an end in sight to the depths of the pandemic and the depths of the financial aspects of the, the, the pandemic. And, you know, I, we had, we had employees running the gamut from frontline every single day, seeing a patient gowning up and all the things they did and caring for a patient, worrying about, do I shower before I go home? How do I, you know, basically strip down at my door or in my garage before I go see my family? How do I go in and shower first thing when I'm there, if they hadn't done so leaving, right? That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum at that time were employees who were sitting at home wishing desperately they could be there helping their coworkers, but we had shut down our operating rooms, right? And they worked in the ophthalmology you know, operating room where they worked in a cath lab where we needed very few of them except for emergency cases or whatever else that was. Um, and recognizing and acknowledging that that in a different way was difficult for those individuals, but also that they were home with a spouse perhaps who was in some other industry who was worried about losing a job, already had lost a job, worked hourly and already had lost hours. And they were worried about burning through their PTO, burning through you know their hours that they had. And we decided to say, we will backstop everybody. Uh, we did bonuses for frontline, but we backstopped those people at home. 
And I do think that ability as a clinician sometimes and having gotten to know people through their lives, it does enable you to kind of put yourself in, in another person's shoes in a very effective way. And uh, uh, it's, it's something that's very meaningful to me and that, that's a big part of what I've done. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Um, kind of moving into a public health question. So in 2019, the greater Houston uh, region had the highest uninsured rates in the country. Um, and at the same time, over half of insured Texans relied on employer-sponsored health insurance for coverage, which has obviously become a concern with the increasing unemployment rates from the pandemic, as you were talking about. Um, so as, as the chairman um, of the board for the Texas Hospital Association, what are you doing to address these concerns or what are people around you doing to address these concerns? Um, yeah. Could you go into that a little bit? Sure. And, and you bring up, obviously, a, a critically important issue. You know, ultimately, <clears throat> COVID has shown us the, the, the significant inequities that we have in our healthcare and inequities to access. And, of course, many, many different ramifications of that, whether that was disproportionate infection rates or disproportionate, uh, you know, uh, death rates, um, whether it was disproportionate uptake of getting communities vaccinated and on and on and on. And fundamentally, the ultimate, you know, inequitable social determinant of health is access to insurance. It's access to coverage. It's having a primary care physician. It's having a relationship with physicians who help you along life's journey, et cetera. And sadly, we live in a state, and as you pointed out, a region in that state that has among the highest uninsured rates in the country. This has been a a decades-long issue across our country, um, and particularly in Texas, it's been very challenging um, because, you know, one solution came out, and let me be really clear, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, whatever you want to call it, a very, very flawed law, and unfortunately a law that got kind of ramrodded by one side of uh, the political spectrum as a symptom of many of the challenges we have. And when that happened, you had another side of the political spectrum that sort of you know, dug in and said, well, if it got ramrodded through over our objections and not listening to what we didn't like about it, we're gonna fight it tooth and nail. And here we are, you know, almost a decade later since, since it was implemented, it was more, well more than a decade when it's passed. Um, and we still have you know, about a third of states or so that have not fully uh, you know, implemented some of the aspects of that. So, um, significant improvements happened in, in uninsured rates um, nationally, including Texas, because of access um, you know, to certain aspects of it. But when the Supreme Court basically ruled that Medicaid you know, couldn't be pushed to be expanded in different states, that became a difference among states. So you know, one of my philosophies is to stay as apolitical and data-driven as I can. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not going to take a, you know, a, a right wing or left wing, a Republican, Democrat uh, take on things. I'm going to go where the data leads. And we've tried to do that throughout COVID. And I think we've done a really good job of that. And we'll take a stand wherever those matters are. So masks work, vaccines work, you know, all those kinds of things um, are, are absolutely data-driven. Mm -hmm. So let's look at the data around um, the Affordable Care Act. It, it really had two major broad effects. One is a lot more people nationally have insurance and coverage than would have if it didn't exist. I think that's unassailable, it's data-driven, and we have way more people covered. I think also because of how it was structured in a bunch of predictable and some unpredictable dynamics, it also drove up the cost of healthcare for quite a while. That has normalized or, or that has flattened and, uh, and, and slowed down. 
But here we are in Texas, as you as you said, where we have not done some of the things we need to do. And it's become a very ideological divide. And anytime we get ideology involved, you know, we don't necessarily make data-driven decisions. So, you know, our urging is that on a bipartisan basis, the leaders of Texas and the leaders of the United States get together and figure this issue out. So when you ask about the Texas Hospital Association, it has taken a very active role in that, but quite frankly, a very frustrating uh, lack of, a, I mean, we've been unable so far to actually make that change in Texas. It's ultimately not our call. It's ultimately not something that we control. And so what we do is continue to urge for a bipartisan look at that, a bipartisan take on that to improve that access throughout the state. Um, so far, it's been small wins as opposed to big wins. The big win needs to happen. Very unequivocally, COVID has shown that um, uh, so cut and dry. Um, but for example, this legislative session, there was some pretty significant significant expansion uh, for mothers and children and the kind of postpartum and peripartum area, et cetera. That's a win, small, small win, but it starts to address many of those issues. So on a more granular level, um, there's much, much that can still be done outside of that massive issue that, that, that we both raise about uh, insurance levels. And that is to really, as a profession, as physicians, as institutions like Houston Methodist, to focus on uh, social determinants of health and to focus on many reasons that are not, you know, the traditional clinical reasons that people have illness. Um, and uh, we do tons of things at Houston Methodist around that. Each year, um, our total charitable care and community benefits contributions are well over uh, in excess of a billion dollars. Um, outside of that, we also have a lot of wonderful community partners, whether it's the food bank or whether it's a bunch of federally qualified health centers or others that we help support and partner with on many of these social determinants. Recognizing how critically important this is, our board last year uh, uh, in the summer committed a $25 million additional fund to focus on projects uh, throughout the community. And we had our first uh, application series for a number of community partners to do that, a number of very new partners for us, and specifically focused as well on diversity, equity, inclusion issues as they relate to healthcare disparities. Um, and you'll see many, many more things come as we have some uh, other great things in the work, but this is a, a significant focus and a significant continuing journey um, for our institution and others. Um, you know, I often state that, uh, you know, when the great institutions of the Texas Medical Center compete with each other around safety, quality, service, uh, and, and innovation, that the patients and the community win because it pushes us all to be great. I also say when we, when we actually collaborate around research and education, and I would add to that community benefit, whether that is, you know, a, a response in a pandemic, which we've all done together, or whether that is focusing on those other issues around social determinants of health, access to healthcare, et cetera. That's when our community wins. And so I'm very excited that we're all working on those together. In some of our prior conversations, you mentioned the importance of mentors in your life and as you advanced in your career, particularly Dr. Ralph Feigen, who is the chair of the Department of Pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine. How did he help you get to where you are today, as well as some of your other mentors? Yeah, I've had I've been blessed, uh, you know, by having a few mentors. And, and one of the things I, I always say to people is think about who might be your mentor. They're usually not forced, right? It's not a it's not a push to do it. It kind of happens a little more organically and granularly, but, but seize those times and moments. And I tell people once they're leaders, they should be thinking about 
you know, who are the people in, in their sphere of influence that, you know, would someday say that's one of my mentors, because that's really how we all make a difference, right, for future leaders. Um, so one of my uh, really, really important mentors was Dr. Ralph Feigen. I was in medical school. Uh, my wife and I were, you know, uh, she was going into pediatrics. I was at that point going into internal medicine. Um, he was then the uh, physician in chief at Texas Children's and a, uh, a chair of pediatrics for Bayer College of Medicine. And he was really good at kind of getting students uh, to stay in his program. So he was, he was actually trying to get me to do med-peds, uh, which I didn't really want to do, and try to keep my wife here. Um, ultimately, he was a good mentor and, and, and helped us both, you know, with what we wanted to do, which was go to Boston. Um, for the programs there. I did Mass General. My wife did Boston Children's. Um, but one of the things he offered to me in medical school was to shadow him because I kind of had this initial inkling I wanted to be in leadership. I didn't really know what that meant. I knew I wanted to stay clinical, but I didn't know what that meant. The role models then were, were chairs of departments and he was a role model. And so he said, well, come tag along with me. And so I spent about six weeks with him as a fourth year medical student all the things he did, it was amazing. Went to board meetings, went to city council meetings, you know, went on rounds with him. I mean, he was he was an amazing, amazing leader, an amazing clinician, um, one of the two smartest physicians I've ever met in my life. One other who was a mentor in Boston, I put kind of in his category, um, and uh, it was just remarkable. Um, I still remember, you know, rounds with him where he would literally alphabetically go through all the viruses somebody could have. And then, oh, nope, it's not one of those. Let's alphabetically go through all the bacteria this could be. And he'd tell you exactly why it was. And of course, he'd always know. It was it was just amazing. Um, he, he, he literally, literally had a, a photographic memory. I remember at times he'd be like, uh, yeah, go back to the Journal of Pediatrics, 1966. I think it's the, you know, November 12th issue. And, <laughs> Maybe page 53, you know, and, and sure enough, I mean, it was just, he was just incredible. Um, but he was an amazing leader and mentor as well. So later he became president of Baylor College of Medicine. I went to business school and uh, this was 1996, um, wrote him a letter during, in between my two years uh, of business school saying, hey, I'm going to be in Houston in a couple of months visiting my family. I'd love to come by your office and, uh, you know, pick your brain a little bit, you know, get some mentoring and advice for, for future jobs. Um, this is snail mail back then still email existed, but, but certainly you wouldn't deem to send an email at that point to, to, to him. It just wasn't kind of the way things were done yet. And he loved to open his own mail. I remember him doing that uh, when I rotated with him. And the story goes, he opens up this envelope during a meeting where they were discussing building a primary care group. And he literally opens it up, turns to everybody else in the room, says, I think I just found the guy we're going to have lead this thing. <laughs> and my, I had an alphanumeric pager back then, you know, um, so, uh, you know, we didn't have cell phones like we think of today, right? Um, in fact, I probably at that point had had a cell phone for a year or two at most. And there was a big, big clunky thing. Um, but the alphanumeric pager would give you sort of a scroll of kind of some text on it. And I get this page in the middle of the day in Philadelphia, Dr. Ralph Feigen with the phone number. And, and if you knew Dr. Feigen, you knew he, he expected you. I and mean, one of the ways he was so efficient, it was like he did something. He never looked at something twice. Um, he opened something up. He dealt with it right there. He called somebody, whatever. And so you knew that when he calls, you answer. And so I dropped everything, picked up the phone and he says, Mark, I think I have a job for you. And, uh, you know, a couple months later came down, started interviewing and sure enough, that led to my first job and, and, and my wife's first job coming back down here. So he was an incredibly important person uh, in my life and I respected the heck out of him. Unfortunately, he died in 2008, far too soon. Uh, 
uh, and far too young. Um, and, uh, I, I wish, I wish I could still talk to him as a mentor and, and wish, you know, um, both I got to talk to him and both he got to kind of see what, what I've been able to do that he helped make possible. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, but that's awesome. Um, mentorship is key for a lot of us uh, going into medicine. Yeah, let me, I mean, mention, a, you asked about a couple others. I'm not going to go into grand detail, but, you know, my parents have been critically important mentors for me. They were immigrants to the United States. My mom didn't speak a word of English. She had a healthcare interest, so I learned and picked up, I think, a lot of that from her. My father kind of, you know, came to the U.S. with change rattling in his pocket. That's about it, and ended up able to succeed in, in uh, kind of engineering, construction, uh, over the years. And I remember watching and observing him and he knew everybody and he knew everybody's life story. And he knew, you know, it's a small company, but he, he would talk and spend time with everybody and just that treating everybody as a person of sacred worth and value, which really is what we're all about at Houston Methodist and watching that. And then, you know, along the way, a couple of important mentors in Boston, Lynn Schroth, who was one of my early bosses who taught me the hospital business, uh, a nurse, uh, actually the one I had that conversation with that I mentioned about, you know, potentially quitting clinical practice and pushing back, but she was just a tremendous mentor. And so I'm blessed as all people are to have other people who hopefully are that have other people who've cared about them and who care about, uh, what, what they've done and, uh, and, uh, you know, are there as a sounding board uh, when times get tough. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, so the goal of this podcast really is to show pre-meds, um, of the many career paths that are, that are like available in medicine. Right. And, uh, there are many ways to care for people other than just in a, in a clinic. So do you have any advice for pre-meds interested in public health or hospital administration? Um, are there like specific activities they should be doing now in undergrad? Um, is there something you did to get interested in uh, hospital administration? It's, you know, there's a bunch of options open. And so I guess the first thing is, you know, I would say is, you know, when I was a 22-year-old first-year medical student, I didn't have a clue what I would end up doing. If you told me this is what I'd be doing, you know, 33 years later, I'd have gone, oh, wow, you know, I had no idea. Um, you know, and so just like that whole journey through medical school of, well, do I want to be a cardiologist? Do I want to be an ENT? Do I want to be a pediatrician? Do I want to be a psychiatrist, et cetera, et cetera, right? You, you get, you'll find yourself and you'll, you'll, you know, you oftentimes it's very hard to predict at a young age, um, you know, where that'll be. Um, but if you have an inkling that's interesting, you know, first, first, there are many opportunities during medical school to shadow, right? I mean, that's a lot of medical school is shadowing during the clinical rotations and, you know, interacting and, and trying on this specialty for size and that specialty for size. So apply some of the same things you'd apply to do. I want to be a pediatrician or do I want to be a heart surgeon, um, you know, to hmm, do I have an interest in public health? Do I have an interest in hospital administration? physician group administration, whatever that is, because there are people out there who are more than happy to spend a little time with you. And you do have some rotations where you have some flexibility or some time off where you have some flexibility where you might follow, talk to somebody like that, follow somebody around. Maybe they set you up with some other people in an institution to follow around. Um, you know, every medical school is rich with people like that. For me, that was Ralph Feigen, right? Where I got to see that. Um, if you see that it's definitely something you want to do, you then have to think about, okay, what are the toolkit I need, right? All of us would say, I want to be a cardiologist. So I know the toolkit is I got to go do an internal medicine residency and then I got to apply for a fellowship. And, you know, do I want to be academic? Do I want to be a uh, private practice or totally clinical? Some, some mix, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you'll 
structure that accordingly. So, you know, similarly, okay, well, I want to be in public health. Well, you know, master's in public health, if you want to be in public health, it's probably a pretty important thing to get. So if you do that as a five-year MD, MPH, I've got a daughter doing that. You know, do you do that as a four-year MD, MPH? Do you go get an MPH as part of a residency or fellowship or in between? I mean, those are all valid questions to ask and talk with mentors about. You know, similarly, if you really want to be on the business side, I mean, I don't know, you know, as I explained, I was engineering and biology. I'd never heard of a class, you know, that was business oriented or economics oriented or finance oriented or leadership or strategy or operations management or negotiations. None of those things, right, that you might have as a business undergrad. And there's a few business undergrads who go to medical school. There's not that many, you know, so you're likely going to need to think about something like an MBA. Do you do that uh, as an MD, MBA? Uh, that's usually a five-year program. Um, a lot of medical schools, you know, have that, uh, you know, in, in place with a partner. Um, the pro of that is, of course, it's very efficient. You get it done in five years instead of, you know, four plus two and you know, the six that you would otherwise do if you do it some other time. Um, and, you know, you're kind of armed with that early in your career. You know, the downside of that is MBA programs are very experiential and very discussion-based and case-based. And, you know, frankly, when you're 23 years old or 24 years old, 25 years old, and you haven't ever run a group or led a group or things like that, you don't get as much out of it, um, potentially. And you don't bring as much to the table just because you don't tie it to those experiences. You know, you can do it. Uh, usually after a residency, that's what I did. Um, the advantage to that was I was still young while we had, a, we were, my wife was pregnant. We were about to have a child. You know, we didn't own a house. We didn't have huge mortgage. We didn't have a lot of things that make it really hard to switch gears once you're a practicing physician. So I treated it like I would have treated a fellowship. In fact, I, I did a fellowship at the same time. And I brought a little more life experience. You know, uh, my training was very team-based. So I'd done a lot of leadership of teams and things. So there was a lot of relevant life experience to bring in, not tons, but a lot, but a, but a fair amount. And so I think um, I was able to get a little more out of it um, and bring a little more than I would have, you know, or do you do it later after you're a practicing physician? Um, the, the challenge of course is financially, how do you do that? Um, you know, executive MBAs are very expensive compared to a traditional MBA if you're going to do it at the same time as, as working. Uh, but uh, of course you can get a lot out of that. Um, if you want to take two years off to do it, you know, that's really hard when you're already a practicing clinician, both for skill set reasons of maintaining your, you know, your skills as well as uh, for practical reasons of, you know, you might be married, have children, have a car, you know, have probably have a car regardless, but have a house, you know, all those kinds of realities that are part of life. So that's a question for everybody to ask, but you're going to need those skill sets. And again, if you're having the question of whether it's something you want to do in your medical school, in your residency, in your fellowship, there's always going to be some time you can find the right people to talk to and some experiential, you know, activities where you can actually see what it's like. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's great, great advice. Well, it seems that our time is up, Dr. Boom, but really, again, thank you so much for speaking to us and uh, for speaking to all the pre-meds that will be listening in. It's really, truly a pleasure getting to know more about your story. It's my pleasure, and I wish you both the best of success. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for listening. We really hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you in the future. Peace. Peace.